L-A-S. Welcome to The Dangerous Leader, where we invite leaders to share their best experiences thriving in a world that expects them to conform so that you can too. Hi there. I am Dr. Jennifer Murphy, here with my fabulous producer, Alex Schulte, who today happens to be wearing pants. I think that'll be a running thing throughout (laughs) the entire podcast this season. Um, If you don't get the joke, go back and listen to the episode called Not That Karen, and it's all explained. So I am the creator of the Art of Living Dangerous Leadership Model, and... Today, I wanted to spend some time with my favorite leader talking about that a little bit. And my favorite leader is me. Uh, Just kidding a little bit about that. But um, I did feel like I've been feeling like I've been prompted, I've been called, and I've learned over the years to trust my intuition that I wanted to talk a little bit more about this idea of what it means to be a dangerous leader. And what I'm talking about when I say that, because there's a lot of different ways to interpret that. So without further ado, let's get right into it. So this journey for me to being a dangerous leader really started, I don't know, probably at birth, but I won't bore you all with all of those crazy details. But I think it really started when I was... uh, exploring the identity of what do I want to be when I grow up. And quite honestly, I think I'm still figuring that out. Um, And if you're with me, you're one of my people. But either way, I had gone into college because no one else in my my world was really um, going to college. And by world, I mean my family. I was from a very small town. I was from a, a farming um, background in my in my family. My dad was a construction worker. My mom managed a local grocery store. I grew up in an incredibly small town. And all I knew was that I wanted out of all of that. And when I looked at what my parents were doing and what their friends were doing, college seemed like the anti-that. So I headed off to college having no flippin' idea what it was I wanted to do when I was in college. So I started as a liberal arts major and started taking a lot of different classes. And that's one of the experiences that I encourage people when I'm coaching with them to do is to just try things. Don't get locked into, well, I chose this path. I'm stuck with it now. Um, but to experiment. And that was really one of my first lessons learned with that was just taking a whole bunch of different classes at the local community college that I had enrolled in. I was also one of those college students that had to pay for everything herself. My family was without means. And somehow or another, I'm still super baffled by this. My dad filled out my financial aid statement in such a way that I was denied financial aid. (laughs) Have no idea how that happened. He still doesn't know how idea how that has no idea how that happened. But I ended up putting myself through school through the first two years of community college. Um, while I was there, the one class that really stood out to me was California constitutional law. I was born and raised in California, and that really stood out. And what I was really really intrigued by was that there was this system that people could go into and essentially tell their stories. And then other people decided if that story was similar to or different than someone else's and then made a judgment call about it. And that whole idea just fascinated me. So I finished up with my community college degree and actually at that same time had 
um, someone that I considered a sister. She lived with us on and off growing up. Um, she passed away um, in a horrible, tragic car accident. And I was left reeling a little bit. The thing about me, though, is I don't tell people when I'm reeling. <laughs> I don't admit it. And so I went on just kept kind of trudging forward and I was still in this kind of directionless trudging, just one foot in the other going forward. And the army called and the army said, Hey, how about you come join us, spend six weeks at Fort Knox, Kentucky in July and we'll pay for the rest of your college. And I was like, hell yeah, sounds like a great deal. No friggin' idea what I was getting into. Let's break that down for a second. The army in and of itself, challenge, Fort Knox, Kentucky in July. For a California girl used to dry heat, give me 110 with no humidity, I will thrive all day long. Give me 92 with 98% humidity, and I am a freaking disaster. So learned about humidity at Fort Knox, learned about chiggers at Fort Knox, which if you don't know what those are, they're these nasty little bugs that are in the grass out there that will burrow under your skin and just create this massive, aching, itchy mess. And of course, I got them around my waistband, where my pants were rubbing constantly. I was in hell. Um, also, though, on a bright side, I met fireflies for the first time. I had never seen fireflies. So here I am, 20 years old, Fort Knox, Kentucky. Um, my first out-of-state flight at 20 years old. That's how poor we were. <laughs> so my first out-of-state flight, 20 years old, I head off to the Army. I leave a whole host of people behind me in California going, what the fuck? <laughs> Is she, is she doing this? Really? Like, and so I, um, but I took to it. I just took to it. And it was one of those things that when the recruiter called, I just instinctively said yes. I had not been planning to go into the military, but it felt like the right thing. And since then, what I've learned is that's really all of the dangerous leaders that I've talked to, people that I would identify as dangerous leaders, have at least one or more of those stories where they don't know why they did something, but they did it because it felt like the right thing to do. And then it launched into this whole series of things. Now, a few other things that were going on with me at that time, um, just for context, because it comes important um, as I go into a little bit more of the leader model is um, I was a raging alcoholic at that time in my life. Um, I had started drinking at the age of 12 and decided that that was my best friend. Um, today, I am excited to share that I am um, 19 and a half years sober, um, have not had a drop of alcohol since um, April 18th, 2003. So um, I'm pretty proud of that. And it's not difficult for me anymore to not drink. Hasn't been for a long time. It's just not part of my life. So I'm in the Army. The culture is go hard on all fronts. And I am all in. It was like somebody found something within me that I didn't know was there. My mom said that my voice even sounded different the first time I called her back. And so I look back at that time and I think about that as one of those pivotal moments. And the way that I started to see those as I developed the dangerous leader model was these points of evolution. And I see our lives as a 
spiral. If you're familiar with the Fibonacci sequence, that may come right to mind, but you can even think of um, those beautiful shells that you pick up and you slice them in half and they have those gorgeous spirals that start in the, be in the middle and they're very small and they just get wider and wider and wider. I use that metaphor a lot because I think we often, we start smaller. Um, you know, our ideas can start smaller. Our ideas, that our circle of influence can start smaller. Our imagination of the world can start smaller. And the more experience we have, the bigger that's get, that gets. So <clears throat> at the heart of uh, the dangerous leader model then starts really with this idea that we have to agree not to settle. We have to agree that where we are right now is not where we're going to be. You don't even have to put a timeline on that. Just where we are now is not where we're going to be. If we love where we are, then we need to invest in more of that and really feed the things that we love. If we despise where we are, we need to make some changes and we need to make some adjustments. I also want to take this the second to step aside and say, I acknowledge that there are barriers that can feel impossible to overcome. And there are systemic injustices that create conditions for people that make this easier for me as a privileged white woman to stand here and say that than it does maybe, um, you know, a black woman or a black man or an Asian woman, an Asian man, anyone else who's in a completely different socioeconomic socioeconomic status than I, has different barriers, has different things going on. So I do want to acknowledge that I'm not, um, I know that that initial journey can be a heck of a lot harder for some um, portions of our population. But back to this idea of evolution. Evolutions don't have to be huge. They can be small. Um, but I start with don't settle and allow the future to be different in some form or fashion. Now, this whole notion of being a dangerous leader hadn't even occurred to me. Um, so if you fast forward through my Army career, I, I was recruited by a company here in Iowa. Again, it was another one of those kind of intuitive things where I just ended up here. I had no goals <laughs> to live in Iowa. And I always laugh, and, and I love to tell the story that I accepted the job here in Iowa in a fever-induced haze because I was on a kind of um, road show of interviews, if you will, when I stopped, and this was my first stop, and I did all the interviews, and I felt like I had done okay. It was a, I was really, really sick. I had severe bronchitis. I could barely speak, and, you know, it was kind of like I did as best I could, and they're probably not going to want me, because, geez Louise, like, what the hell? And they called me and offered it to me while I was laying, thinking that I was dying, in a hotel room in downtown Cedar Rapids. Um, and so I always jokingly say I accepted the job in Iowa in a fever-induced haze. Um, and also because I just did not want to travel anymore. So yes, pay me. I will stay here. Whatever. Go get my stuff from Fayetteville. <laughs> I just don't make me move. Um, turned out to be the best thing. It really did turn out to be the best thing for where I was in my life. Um, when I tell these kinds of stories to people, the response I often get is, oh my God, you're so brave. I don't see it that way. That's not how I see. Um, I don't see myself as courageous in that. Now, maybe by comparison, maybe by comparison to the actions or the things that you feel comfortable with, that might feel brave. But my risk tolerance is super duper high. I don't worry about that kind of stuff. I trust that these things are going to work out. Again, that's not a judgment. That's just a difference. And I think everybody has to recognize that comparing 
your insides to my outsides is a bad idea. And that goes for everybody. You know, as you're looking at what someone else is doing and thinking, oh, they're so amazing. Oh, my God, they just have it all put together. It's so fantastic. Maybe not. They could be the biggest mess in the world inside. You don't know. You don't have any idea. So really think about that idea when you find yourself in that place of positive or negative judgment of someone. You don't know what their inner world is like. And so um, there's all kinds of expressions and memes and blah, 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 blah around that. But I think that core concept of you don't know what someone else is experiencing is something you've got to remember. And I think that is part of what makes up a dangerous leader because dangerous leaders are curious. That's just one of those characteristics I found in every person that I have coached over the last 12 years. They are curious. They're wanting answers. And that's how I was. I started working with a coach in 2010. And what prompted me to work with this coach was I was now seven years separated from alcohol, probably about five years actually recovered um, because I did have a stint about 18 months into my recovery that um, I was suicidal and I was ready to end it all because I thought this can't be what it is. <laughs> this just can't be life. Um, I'm doing all the things. I'm saying all the right things. I'm reading the stuff people are telling me to read, but my life still sucks. And again, back to that point of everyone else could be um, looking at me going super successful, you know, six-figure job, literally had a house in the suburbs with a white picket fence, like literally built out the dream, um, had two dogs. I went and found a husband that had two kids so I could just get the quick family. Like from where I sat, I was running down the checklist. Boom, 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 boom. Here is success. I have achieved it. All is well. Okay, so now what? So in 2010, I found myself with health issues just out the wazoo. Um, I had reflux. I had beginnings of ulcers. I had migraines. I had put on more weight than I had ever carried in my life. Um, I was constantly stressed when I was at work. I was thinking about being at home. When I was at home, I was thinking about being at work. I was traveling two to three weeks out of the month for work, and I had an infant at home. Um, my son had been born three months premature, and I got to spend a bunch of time off of work. The ironic thing is, while I was off of work, they promoted me. Like, that's kind of a weird reinforcing message. <laughs> so work yourself to the bone to the point where you can't carry a child to full-term labor, and we will promote you. Like, that is not work advice I would give to people. <laughs> so I returned to this job. Um, everything is kind of moving along, but I'm, quite frankly, just I'm done with the traveling piece of it. And I go to my boss and I say, this job is great. I am good at this job. This job is not good for me at this point in my life. And I need a change. So I changed. And that was that really started to become the beginning of my end in traditional corporate America. And it was a big leap for me. And this was right around the time that the concept of the dangerous leader started to be born because I knew I wanted to do something different. I recently got a new term for this, and it is um, David Brooks's book called Second Mountain, 
and he talks about how some of us live first mountain, second mountain lives. And what a first mountain life is, is that kind of traditional path that we all take. Um, I don't want to say all of us, a traditional path that a lot of people take where you go to school or sorry, yeah, you go to school, you go to more school, you go to more school, you get a job or you go to school, you go to trade school, you get a job or you go to school and you get a job. Um, And then you start building out all of the other accessories from there, right? The family, the dog, the house, the car, the blah, 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 whatever it is that is on your list. And then we get to the top of that. We have all those things and we're standing there and we go, huh, yeah, not real fulfilling. (laughs) I really thought this would feel better. (laughs) And it doesn't. And I loved the way that he describes that in his book because um, it's that was my story. Because then what happens, though, in order to get to the next mountain, you have to go through kind of dark valley. And that was the valley I had to traverse at that point. But I didn't do it alone, thank goodness. Um, In 2010, I was in Australia with a colleague. We were doing some work. I know, poor me. Um, But we were in Australia, which was a beautiful place, and I felt like was probably like the, the home of my soul, to be honest. I was in love with that place. And my girlfriend sent me an email, and this was the days before text messaging being the only way we ever communicate. She sent me an email, and she said, hey, this woman I know is coming to town, and you need to connect with her. And I trust my friend. And I said yes. And I called immediately and made an appointment. That started what turned into a 10-year coaching relationship um, where I met with this woman on a regular basis. She helped. And I'll never forget our first session because she said, um, she said, okay, so tell me, tell me what's going on. And I was just like, oh, like my work life is horrible and I'm not happy and I'm all these things are going on and, you know, I'm complaining about this person at work and that person. I just want to figure out what I want to do. She goes, okay, so, so how's your marriage? Like, I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about work. That's all I want to talk about. She's like, well, here's the thing. The relationships in your life are more important than the thing that you do. And that kind of stopped me because I would not been a very relational focused person. And that, in that moment, felt super dangerous. That was dangerous waters for me to walk in. Um, What I ended up starting to focus on then was the relationships in my life and the kinds of friends that I had, the kind of people I was surrounding myself with, the kind of um, bonds that I was forming. And at that time, I was um, incredibly involved in a recovery program. I was um, working with like 10 different people who were also in a recovery program. I was attending meetings on a very, almost every night of the week, going to retreats, leading different things or serving different things given the, the structure. It was just, it was a lot. On top of that, I'm working 40 to 50 hours a week. I've got this baby, um, and I've got a husband at the time who, let's just say I co-parent with this man today much better than we parented together when we were married. Um, We are actually great friends today, um, which is not the story of everybody else. So um, what eventually ended up happening was over the course of those first two years of working with her, we got to the point where I figured out what I wanted to be for the next part of my growing up, and that was I wanted to be a coach. And so, um, but I didn't believe it, that that was possible for me. And um, this was kind of the next dangerous move I really made because I was making an incredible amount of money working for this huge company 
with um, quote unquote incredible job security and nowhere to go but up. They were trying to promote me. They were trying to get me to um, take higher levels of responsibility. And this was the exact same condition I was in when I left the army. Um, seven years prior to that, seven years prior to that, when I was trying to leave the army, they were trying to recruit me into, you know, kind of an elite field. They were trying to get me to stay because I was, I was good at what I did. And I can say that with confidence. I am good at the jobs that I do. Um, and so I, you know, but I'm just looking at it and I'm like, all I, all I feel when I check in with myself, when I look at the potential of these next positions is dread and more stress and more weight and I'm not excited and so I kept turning them down and I got an opportunity to join the board of an organization that was going to be starting here in town and I said yes immediately and it turned out I was the only one with any business experience at all on this board which was a very interesting space to be in um that business ended up going from a nonprofit to a for-profit business, and I was given the opportunity to open a couple of businesses within this entity, and I did. I leapt at it. I talked to my um, then-husband, now ex-husband, and this was the moment it all started to change. On our anniversary, which was probably not great timing, but on our anniversary in 2012, I said, hey, this is what I think I want to do. And he looked at me and he said, not no, but fuck no, are you going to do that? I like the life I have. I don't want to change it. And there was more words around it than that, but that was the message. And those first four words were exactly the words he said to me. And I remember thinking, the hell I'm not. <laughs> so I went home and I wrote a business plan. Because the ease, what he did not, despite how long we'd been married, what he did not still know about me was the best way to get me to do anything is to tell me that I can't. And so I went home and my parents actually were living with us at the time. And so in my household were four adults, two teenagers, a toddler, three Labradors, and a Chihuahua. <laughs> so I walked into my chaos of a house and I said, this is what I want to do, and this is how it can happen. And I laid out the business plan, and I did all the things. And um, I said, this is how it will work. And my ex-husband said was dead against it, but still he went along with it. Um, my dad and I had a construction company. We built the place. We put it together. I gave notice at my organization to the shock of everyone. Nobody expected it. And I went for it. And so in 2012, I left a six-figure job on August 31st. And on September 1st, I made three figures. Um, and it was quite a shocker. Six months later, my, my soon-to-be ex-husband was issuing me an ultimatum that I had to stop working so many hours or else. And I said, I will take the or else. And we began divorce proceedings. A lot more to that, to that story, but um, it was it was time. Um, and as I said, today we have a much stronger relationship. I think um, our son actually really benefits from being able to have the two different styles of households. Um, it just And my son and I have a great relationship, and we talk about these things a lot. Um, but I will tell you that, that my plan, part of my plan, had been having the safety net of my husband's income. And now I didn't have it. And I was only six months into a new built new business and I was not self-supporting yet. 
But the universe conspired to support me, and I became self-supporting pretty quickly, and I self-supported my way through all that. And that was really where the, the structure or the firmness to the concept of living dangerously uh, really began to emerge. And it emerged because I was working with a business coach. I was trying to figure out what's the right structure and the right format for this business. And he was like, well, why do you think that some people don't want to change like what's going on in their life? And I said, I think it's because it just it feels dangerous. Like my life might be shit, but it's shit that I, I'm familiar with. I know it. I, I know what it is. I know what it looks like. I know what I'm waking up to every day. If my finances are in chaos, yeah, that sucks, but I know what that looks like. If my relationship is a mess, yeah, it sucks, but I know what that looks like. Um, and it, the fam- there is some comfort in the familiarity, even when the familiarity is shit. And so, you know, and he's like, ooh, there is something there. And what came out of that was an exercise that I built from my former, in the former instantiation of my business called 30 Days of Living Dangerously. And I will link this on my website. It's just a little downloadable um, sheet that you can, you can calendarize or whatever you want to do. Um, and it is um, each day, it's just something new, something small to try. And the magic in that is we all get stuck in ruts. Things as simple as um, hitting our snooze three times every morning or taking the same exact route to work every single day or shopping always at the only grocery store that you've ever shopped at or always vacationing the same place or, or, or. You name your favorite. Um, for example, there are multiple dog parks in our area. Do you always go to the same one? <laughs> there may be other dogs out there that your dog needs to meet. I don't know. Silly example, but I found myself in that rut too and changed it. So it's little things like that where you have the power to not have to deviate 100% from your daily schedule, but be able to just enjoy a little bit of a break from the norm. So I introduced that, and that actually drew in several different clients that were like, oh my gosh, I I need to approach my life differently. I am so stuck in this rut. I am so stuck in this place. And I started working with clients a little more intensely on that, that piece of transition. I ended up writing a book about all of this called The Art of Living Dangerously, The Rebel's Guide to Thriving in a World That Expects You to Conform because that had become my ideology. I question everything. I mentioned earlier about that curiosity, right? And, and I, I do, I question everything. Like, is this right for me? Is this the path I should be on? Is this where I wanna be going? Is this, and sometimes I don't know, but at least I've checked in and I am conscious about what I'm stepping into or what I'm doing. And so <clears throat> in the book, I kinda use the metaphor of a revolution and about how to kind of revolutionize your life. And one of the big tools that I lean heavily on and and continue to lean heavily on is uh, the idea of aligning your priorities and not just here's what's most important to me, here's my to-do list because it's not a to-do list. It's an actionable, um, operationalized list of priorities and how they connect to your values and what that means in action in your life. 
And I love working through that with people because I actually had a client who's today a dear friend who was at a, um, a sporting event for her kids and she was trying to make some big decisions about what to do in her world. And she's sending me all these questions and I just said, how does that line up with the priorities and values that we just went through? And she, there was a pause in the text chain and she, <laughs> she replied back. She's like, oh my God, you're so right. And it was just this big kind of like aha moment for her with this is where I use these. This is why this is important to know. Since that point, she's been able to use those over and over and over again to make some really big sweeping changes in her life. And I use them the same way. I like to use the question when it comes to that too. Is this getting me closer or further away from the life that I want to be living? And if the answer is further away, then I have some second and third order questions I can ask and like kind of like for how long, how extreme is it, those kinds of things. And then I can risk, you know, make that risk assessment and decide, is this risk worth it? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. There's no single answer to that. So living dangerously, it really boils down to living as yourself. And we live in a society that wants us to be like everyone else. I think things like the influencer movements encourage that. I'm not against influencers as, as people or as an institution, but I think it can be very easy to fall into and, oh my God, my favorite influencer is doing X, Y, or Z. That means that's what right is. It's not true. That's what right is for that person. That's what they believe in. And they're sharing that opportunity with you. But it doesn't mean it's right for you. I am so annoyed when books come out and it's all of a sudden everybody's, did you do this? So-and-so said, and, I mean, and, and I'm, I'm going to disparage Sheryl Sandberg here for just a second. I don't mean it personally. But when Lean In came out, I started to read the first couple of chapters of it and I got nauseous. Because all I read in that book was how I am to blame for not being recognized as a woman of power within my organization. That was what I read. I don't think that's what she meant. I really don't think that was her intent. But that was what I read and I was sick. I was sick to my stomach reading that. All the while, I'm watching all of these people around me just rave about this book. And I'm thinking, is it me? <laughs> am I wrong? No, I'm not wrong. I'm right for me. And that took a little bit of courage to tell people because I was the outcast in those conversations. Um, and so you'll, when you find yourself being the only voice in the room that is really truly against something and you know why you're against it and you can align that to your values, to me, that's being a dangerous leader. To me, that's being the voice that you need to be for yourself to be authentic and to be real. And that's all I really want from people. In 20, so I published the book in 2017. And then in 2018, I started a doctoral program. And one of my motivations for starting that doctoral program was to fix the coaching industry. There are no small ideas, just small people. Um, so... <laughs> 
I was going to fix the coaching industry by going into this doctoral of executive doctor of executive leadership program and figuring out all the things that coaches were screwing up and I was going to fix it. Like that was my, my anthem. And I didn't really know that that's what I wanted to do, but I just knew something was wrong there and that more knowledge was certainly the answer. Um, there's, that's a dangerous thought in maybe a bad way, quite honestly, because more knowledge is not always the answer because it's maybe knowledge accompanied by action is really where we need to focus. So I took on this program and I went in with the idea that A, I'm not studying women and B, I'm not studying anything normal. I'm going to study women leaders in the cannabis industry. This was my plan and I was excited about it. I am, I am a cannabis advocate. I believe in the power of the plant. I am 100% um, behind initiatives to federally legalize it. So if that turns you off, you're, turns you off, you might not be one of my people, and I'm okay with that. Um, but the the thing about it was, I started down this road, and my God, there was like the slate was clean. Nobody's studying this. Like there was no one out there doing anything in this area. Lots of medical studies on cannabis, very little in leadership. So I'm ready to plunge in with both feet. And the challenge is I live in Iowa. Iowa's not a legal state. And so there's not a whole heck of a lot of women in cannabis in the state. We're pretty sure that um, there's maybe one these days. So I um, am going to go back out to California to do a lot of my research and talk with women who've been doing this for a while or who are in a legal state who have gone through a lot of things. And then COVID hits. COVID changed so many things in our, in our world, some for good, some for bad. I was just talking with my healthcare provider about how many things um, within the VA health system have changed for good and, and how many have gotten rougher. And in this case, it, it turned out ultimately to be a good thing. Short term, I was just so disappointed. But what it allowed me to do was pivot. And I, and I should back up a second because when I went into studying this, I was like, I'm not studying women in leadership because women, they're so overdone. There's no difference. I had all these terrible, horrible I, just fallacies in my head around women and leading and all these things. I think it was our third class, second class maybe in, I was reading a chapter about gender leadership and I was like, I was, I found myself getting pissed. Like I was mad, angry, mad reading some of the things and I thought, okay, well, <laughs> maybe I do need to study this. So that's where the intersection with women and cannabis came in. And then when I needed to pivot, I knew I still wanted to study women in leadership, but where the natural pivot in that, and I, God, that's twice I owe $2 to the corporate swear word jar, um, where that natural shift came in was to um, entrepreneurship. And so I started, I wanted to study women in entrepreneurship. And then I just really decided I wanted to study women in entrepreneurship in this area in Eastern Iowa. And so that's what I did. And what came out of that was I had this book now that was published. And now I have this research that I'm uncovering. And I get mad at myself about the book because the book now is no longer good enough because now I know more. <laughs> and I've heard about this from a lot of writers, a lot of artists, that once they create something, they hate it. And that kind of makes me laugh because that was how I felt. I was like, oh, that's just, I, I know so much more now. I want to unpublish that book. I don't want anybody to read it. It's ridiculous. It's stupid. It's not going to help anybody, blah, 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 blah. 
And it was within like a couple of days. I had somebody reach out to me and go, I just read your book. It was so helpful. Like I need this. I was like, oh my God. And what my coach explained to me is she's like, you need to understand that everybody comes into this work at different places. And your book is incredibly accessible and it lets people enter at a certain place. And now your next book that you're working on will allow those people to follow and grow with you. And I was like, gosh, darn you and your wisdom, you know? So I am working on my second book, and it is all those things that I had hoped for where I'm basing it on research, I'm basing it on leadership theory, on concepts, on principles, all that great stuff, and it's a lot of fun to write right now. Um, But what emerged from my doctoral program more than all the research, more than anything else, was this model. And I call it the dangerous leader model, and it has become the foundation of all of the work that I do. And as I started to explain earlier, it starts with that idea that we don't settle. There are no limits to what we are capable of except those that we allow. And I believe that. Um, I'm not trying to say that your situation is not valid, that your circumstances are not real. But we allow what we allow. And there are also systemic assistance or systemic helpers out there. There's assistance. There's a lot of ways out of situations that we're in. And I'm not saying that they're easy. I never mean to imply that. But what happens is as soon as we do make that different choice, we get to move forward and we get to have a fresh experience. And that fresh experience um, is best experienced when we then start to form a vision And a vision is not a life plan. It's not a freaking vision board. It's not this poofy thing that I hear a lot of people sprinkling fairy dust on and talking about as if they're going to save their lives. Like that kind of stuff, I I just, I call bullshit. All right. I'm not, I'm not going to say that those things aren't valuable tools, but they are not the thing that gets you to where you are. Your choices get you to where you want to be. If a vision board helps remind you of your choices, use it. If a stone that you carry around in your bra helps remind you of your vision, do it. Whatever that thing is, that's great. But remember, it's a tool. It's not the thing that's moving you forward. You are. And every time you establish that vision, and the metaphor I always use is, hey, there's this big vision sitting up on a hilltop far, far away. And in front of me, and I'm carrying like a stack of pavers. These are my things that I'm working with. And every time I decide to lay down a specific paver in a direction, that gets me one step closer to that kind of vision that I want, that life that I want to be living. And so I am always talking to people about, right, well, what pavers are you laying down? You know, what do you, what are you doing to create your path? And, um, and so that that little path kind of keeps going and then boom, you hit an event. You hit um, a, a planned or unplanned life event and you have to, you go through a little evolutionary change again that grows you into that next um, clarification of your vision. And this happens over and over and over again as your life continues forward. You are constantly in a state of being remade. 
Um, I was listening to something the other day about how often like our skin cells shed and like we are li- like we are literally have new skin like every four days or something like that. It's like it's ridiculous. It's like the person that I touched four days ago is not the same person I'm going to touch today. You know, it's kind of a I don't know. It kind of gets gross when you think about it. But <laughs> but in any case, I believe that same thing to be true about the way that we live our life. So I wanted to finish this up with um, a tiny little um, nod to the manifesto that I wrote probably four or five years ago, but it it rings true for me today. Um, I'm going to try to read without Alex glaring at me because I sound like I'm reading. All right, so what this is, is I call this the Dangerous Leader Manifesto, and it is on my website. My community is all about courage. My community wants the courage to step out of the expected into the authentic. My community doesn't want to be stressed out working jobs they hate in relationships that stifle them. They want to thrive, but they're afraid. What will people think? What will people say? What happens if I change? My life isn't what I want, but what if it gets worse when I change? Who am I to ask for more? They exclaim. Oh, but what if it gets better? Can I handle better? Do I deserve better? They whisper. My community is simultaneously their best asset and ally and worst obstacle and enemy. My community has ideas they want to follow, but aren't sure how. They want to have more ideas and impact the world in a positive, big way. My community doesn't want to live small. They want to live big without limits and without constriction on the good they can do. They are fierce, independent beings who have too too long not allowed their true nature to shine. My community wants to be their own boss. They want to express their creative and spiritual gifts and talents and callings in a way that creates purpose-based, profitable lifestyles for themselves. They want to move past the old idea that being a creative or a spiritual professional can't pay the bills and create the lifestyle that they want while simultaneously serving others and sharing messages in a big way. My community has settled for for far, far, far too long in lives constructed on false definitions of success and are ready to make some changes, allowing them to be more, do more, and live more fully. They're going to walk through things that scare them They'll stumble, they'll fall over these things, but they will get back up and keep moving. My community seeks courage within to do what fear says is too fucking hard. They seek to do what their programming declares impossible. They crave the energy of creativity and spirituality as a way of life and not just something they do. My community is afraid and doing it anyway. They are ready to face the fears and heal them, to face the old programming and reprogram it. They seek personal development and growth and are open to new thought patterns and perspectives. My community wants to lead, to lead in their lives, their work and their passions. They're ready to take organizations to next levels, create and sustain movements and generate transformation on a global scale. They wanna be in love with their life every single minute of it and they take action to make that love grow. Are you with me? It's time to go out there and live dangerously, be you.
Yes.